Dictionary of African American English. This new dictionary will be out by March of 2025. And the goal of this project is to underscore the significance of African American English and to create a resource for future research into Black speech, history, and culture. Researchers say the aim is to publish a first batch of 1,000 definitions. Some words and phrases will have multiple meanings, but lots of phrases that we're accustomed to, like bussin' and boo, <laughs> which means your lover or romantic partner will be a part of this new project. House Democratic lawmakers are voicing frustration over President Biden's approach to negotiating a debt ceiling deal with Republicans. They worry that their priorities are not being aggressively pursued, and that Biden hasn't used uh, enough of his position or power to push back publicly against Republican demands. Born in Tennessee, Tina Turner is revered worldwide as the American queen of rock and roll. But for Turner, Europe was the place where she reached new levels of fame and happiness after a very tumultuous life in the United States and an abusive first marriage. As the Supreme Court deliberates the future of President Biden's student loan forgiveness program, the House voted today, or yesterday that is, to overturn the controversial plan to cancel more than $400 billion in debt, as well as restart loan payments for tens of millions of borrowers. Ron DeSantis' presidential campaign launch was a complete meltdown as Twitter glitched throughout the uh, one-hour planned announcement. By the time Ron DeSantis got the moment his political team had spent weeks negotiating, there were fewer than 70,000 viewers remaining, a significantly smaller audience than is traditional for a major presidential campaign launch. President Joe Biden announced today that he is tapping Air Force General C.Q. Brown Jr., a history-making fighter pilot with deep knowledge of China, to serve as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Brown's confirmation would mean that for the first time in U.S. history, both the Pentagon's top military and civilian positions would be held by African Americans. The Arkansas man who was photographed on January 6, 2021 with his feet on a desk in then-Speaker Nancy Pelosi's office was sentenced yesterday to four and a half years in prison. Well, Target, the store we all love, many of us love, came under intense scrutiny this week after the retail giant announced that it was pulling some of its LGBTQ-themed merchandise following what a corporate spokesperson described as threats impacting Target team members and their sense of safety and well-being while at work. Target customers posted videos on TikTok showing that Pride merchandise displays have been moved to less visible locations, including the back of the store. The NAACP's travel advisory for Black people considering a visit or move to Florida has less to do with potential travelers and more to do with rallying the Black residents of the state of Florida to counter Republican-led policies. Members of the Civil Rights Organization have said to NBC News that this was about getting people to recognize the danger in so many of the policies that have been enacted by 
Florida's Governor Ron DeSantis, who wants to take his Florida roadshow to the White House. Well, this is Ariba Martin in real time, and I'm your host, Ariba Martin. This is your one-stop destination for today's trendy news, expert analysis, and my unfiltered opinions. I'm joined today by two of my favorite contributors, Dr. Nick Cortelai. Corte, he's a KBLA national political analyst and host of A More Perfect Union right here on KBLA every Sunday at 10 a.m. and again at 10 p.m. Also in this hour, I'm joined by Dr. Carlos Hill. He's a historian, a professor, and author of multiple books, including Beyond the Rope, The Impact of Lynching on Black Culture and Memory. And in hour two, the musical legend and icon Tina Turner died yesterday at 83 in her home in Switzerland. And while there is so much to celebrate from her legacy, in hour two, we are focusing on the way her legacy has impacted Black culture, Black love, and Black rappers whose lyrics often fantasize about her abusive relationship with her ex-husband, Ike Turner. Uh, we have two experts who are going to join me to help us understand how to really place the relationship, the very, very violent relationship she had with her ex-husband in the proper context. But before I bring on my guests, here's what I'm thinking about in real time. I've been scratching my head all day and asking myself, how does a veteran with a Yale Law degree who worked on Capitol Hill become the leader of one of the most notorious white supremacist groups in the country and then find themselves facing nearly two decades in federal prison for being a threat to the country and to our democracy? Well, that's the question I'm sure Stuart Rhodes is asking himself today. Stuart Rhodes is the leader of the far-right Oath Keepers Militia, and he was sentenced today to 18 years in federal prison for his conviction on seditious conspiracy charges for the role he played in helping to mobilize the pro-Trump attack on the Capitol on January 6, 2021. Now, this sentence was handed down in the federal district court in Washington, and it is the most severe penalty so far in the more than 1,000 criminal cases stemming from the Capitol attack. And this sentence is the first to be increased for fitting the legal definition of terrorism. Uh, this was also, Rose was the first to be given uh, a sentence, and there are 10 other Oath Keepers and another far-right group, the Proud Boys, all of these individuals were convicted of sedition in connection with the January 6th insurrection. Uh, Rhodes' uh, role as the founder and the leader has thrust him into the spotlight and now will send him to prison for what is likely to be the better part of his remaining days. And despite getting this 18-year federal prison sentence, Rhodes is maintaining his innocence. He's arguing that he is a political prisoner. And he also continues to maintain that the election was rigged and that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are puppets of the Chinese government and that Trump needed to invoke the Insurrection Act so that he would have had the power to call up militias like the Oath Keepers to suppress the Biden and Harris coup. Yes, the lawful election of Biden and Harris, Rhodes is calling a coup that needed to be, uh, that 
you know, that Trump needed to use this decades old act, the Insurrection Act, so that he could call up folks like Rhodes and his militia, who he had stationed right outside of Washington, D.C., so that they could overthrow the legitimate government and transition of power to Biden and Harris. I'm telling you, you cannot make this stuff up. This is what Stuart Rhodes is continuing to maintain. He gave a jailhouse interview and he continues to be a threat to this country. And I, as you all know, and you listen to my show, you've watched me for years. I am not a proponent of long prison sentences. I, I'm not a believer in mass incarceration, but Rhodes and the other Oath Keepers and Proud Boys, these guys, mostly men, are clear and present dangers. They present clear and present danger to our democracy and to our physical safety. So if there was ever a need for long prison sentences, it was today, and it is in the case of these individuals who have all been convicted. So I say kudos to the judge that had the vision and the courage to give Stuart Rhodes an 18-year prison sentence. When we come forward, more with my experts and today's trending news right here on KBLA Talk 1580. She's the real deal in real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. The way we spend our time defines who we are. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. I'm back and I'm joined in this hour by two of my favorite contributors, Dr. Nick Cordelay Corte. He's KBLA national political analyst and host of A More Perfect Union right here on KBLA every Sunday at 10 a.m. and then again at 10 p.m. And Dr. Carlos Hill is here. He's a historian, professor, and author of many books, including Beyond the Rope, The Impact of Lynching on Black Culture and Memory. Thanks so much to both of you for joining. Let's start, uh, Dr. Corte, with this NAAC travel advisory. This got the attention of a lot of Republicans. We saw uh, Rick Scott and others, even DeSantis commenting on the NAACP and, and some actually mocking the NAACP for issuing this travel warning, which is what, advisory, which is, I think, why we're seeing the NAACP come out and try to get more clarity what the for what the purpose of it is. They're talking about how to rally the Black residents of Florida to fight back, to you know get engaged, to, to register more voters, to vote in the elections. What, what do you make of this advisory and how a effective do you think it will be in deterring black folks from actually visiting the state those who you know who don't live in the state well i i think the travel advisory um is timely i think it is incredibly uh, important that we exercise our agency and the NAACP has a long track record of uh, inspiring Black folks to exercise our agency. We know that boycotts can be rather effective, uh, but we also know that uh, this is the time uh, to begin to, to connect the dots and to do that public education so that people understand what their choices are when it comes to the ballot box. You know, uh, a, there are a lot of, a lot of folks that, um, you know, really sit in horror at the idea of their potentially being a president DeSantis. And you know, we don't have to wonder what would he do should he uh, occupy the Oval Office. 
Uh, just look at what he's done in the state of Florida. Look at what it's like for Black folks, for LGBTQ folks, for women exercising their reproductive rights. I mean, there's no constituency that's been off limits uh, to the madness perpetrated by Governor DeSantis and Republicans in Florida. And so this is a tactic to get people engaged, to get our people to pay attention, and more importantly, exercise the power that we have at the ballot box starting now. No, really good point. And obviously those culture wars, DeSantis, rather than you know stepping away from them as he makes his run for president, he is leaning into them, even though that Twitter announcement was full of glitches and basically was a big meltdown. When he did talk, he leaned more heavily into those culture wars. Uh, what are you thinking, uh, Professor Hill, about you know, the NAACP, their tactics, you know, should we be doing more? You know, because I often ask the folks that we have some contributors from Florida when they come on, I always feel like we're not hearing enough from the people in Florida who are fighting back against DeSantis and some of these policies. It just feels like every day the news is, you know, some atrocious, oppressive bill that he has signed, but we're not hearing those voices uh, of opposition. And the NAACP obviously is trying to step in, I think, a void and be a voice in some ways. Uh, do you think this is the most effective way to do that? Um, I think it takes a village. It takes the NAACP uh, doing what it's doing. It takes, uh, you mentioned, there's. are there others on the ground in Florida trying to rectify or trying to oppose what's happening? You have people like Desmond Mead, who's a a voting rights activist for returning citizens. He's in many ways at the center of trying to make sure that Black people, but not just Black people, uh, people who've, who've, whose votes have been stripped from them uh, because of a felony conviction, uh, he's trying to make sure that those individuals uh, have their right to vote and in and, and, and that way influence the election. So there's a, a lot of things that are happening to sort of thwart uh, the kind of white nationalist policies of DeSantis, which uh, correctly we're, we're highlighting if he were to become president, we have nothing, no, no evidence to believe that or disbelieve that he wouldn't do the same thing that he's doing in Florida. Uh, so uh, I'm, I, I think that we need a village of, of efforts, a, a community of people and organizations pushing back against, because that's going to be the most effective way uh, to make sure that he doesn't get to the White House. Yeah. And one of the culture wars that he's leading into is this whole, you know, don't say gay, that bill that was uh, signed into law in Florida. And also, uh, Dr. Corte, he has described his fight with Disney you know, because a lot of Republicans are really upset and, and say, look, we, we shouldn't be picking fights with big corporations, particularly those that employ hundreds of thousands of people. But he says it's not about Disney. It's more about trying to prevent Disney from what he says was indoctrinating school children with, you know, concepts of, you know, the LGBTQ concepts, as he calls them. So do you think there's any relationship between DeSantis and his targeting of the LGBTQ community and what we're seeing now with Target, the big box store Target that has said that they're changing their this, their merchandising for Pride Month and some of their Pride theme merchandise because of what they're calling these online attacks uh, that have been made against their team members? I mean, absolutely, Ariva. There is a connection between 
the anti-black and anti-LGBTQ rhetoric that we have heard coming out of the mouth of uh, Governor Ron DeSantis uh, from way back, even when he was candidate uh, DeSantis running for governor. Uh, and, you know, uh, big props to Disney for holding their ground and for standing up to a bully, because that's exactly what's happening right now. Uh, we're seeing not just Governor DeSantis, but Republicans in Florida and across the country enabling that kind of bigotry. And yeah, it reverberates across the country. Yeah, it reverberates, you know, uh, across industry to the point where Target, a very, you know, sort of family-friendly uh, brand, a place where, you know, everybody, you know, can go and and uh, and partake in the products and services they offer. Uh, even the folks at Target, you know, now have to uh, look over their shoulder and, and think twice about product placement of LGBTQ-affirming brands, LGBTQ-affirming products, right? That didn't just happen by itself. It happened because, you know, you had bullies like Governor DeSantis, you know, that are picking on trans kids, that are picking on LGBTQ folks and making our communities unsafe. And, you know, how many times do we have to see, you know, the threat of violence, the threat of harm against folks that are a part of our community, a part of our village? How often do we need to see this before we stop these bullies that are weaponizing their bully pulpit, uh, you know, at the expense of uh, our family members, our neighbors. You know, there's nothing about what he's doing that uh, is in line with, with, with loving thy neighbor. And it's strange to me that the evangelical community isn't standing up to him in the same way that we're seeing corporate America, corporate leaders like Disney, standing up to him. Yeah, and I guess I wonder, how many of these battles, uh, Professor Hill, can we take on? Because I could imagine that maybe the LGBT community wants to put some pressure on Target and say, look, we're going to boycott you, or there's going to be some response to you pulling these products or rearranging these products. But I'm sitting here thinking, I mean, we'd be boycotting states and department stores and big box stores you know, there's schools that are engaged in this conduct. There's so many of these culture wars taking place on so many different levels. How do we, you know, how do we embrace all of them? How do we take all of them on without just exhausting ourselves or spreading ourselves so thinly that we're not effective? Yeah, I mean, I think we got to, you know, this is the work of movements, honestly. Uh, movements operate at multiple levels, right, at national and local levels. And I think, in so many ways, we can't afford not to fight on any level. We have to fight at the local level. We have to fight at the national level because that's where the fight ultimately is. Um, and so I think we just have to um, muster the energy, uh, the required energy to do it. Um, but I think all these fights, um, conflicts are significant, uh, particularly the local ones, because they inform the national conversation so much. So. Um, I, I don't know if I, I don't I don't know if that's a satisfying answer, <laughs> Ariva, but I think that's that's where it is. I'm I'm deeply engaged here in Oklahoma. I'll say this. And in Oklahoma, we've seen some of the ugliest rhetoric in terms of indoctrination. Um, and so we had just just a week ago, uh, Oklahoma legislators say, in, you know, in uh, in open session, or excuse me, not in open session, but uh, in response to a question from a reporter, the idea that uh, that uh, DEI 
is about uh, in, um, including everybody and that I have to accept including everyone is, quote, horseshit. And so this is a leader of our state saying that diversity, equity, and inclusion plans is horseshit. And that kind of rhetoric has been embraced, right, by that white nationalist rhetoric has been embraced by the Republican Party, um, and not just people like DeSantis who are running for president. And so it's a much bigger issue than, than DeSantis, although he's, uh, I think, trying to be as polarizing as possible as he's learned from Trump that can get you attention and get you votes. Um, but I think for him, it's going to have diminishing returns. Yes. What What is... DeSantis is lame, uh, you know, need because if you're just an imitation of Trump, why wouldn't I just vote for the real deal? Why would I take the imitation if I can get Trump? So being Trump-esque or Trump-adjacent or Trump-like seems not to be a, a very effective strategy. So where is his lane? I, I, I'm a little confused about what he thinks and, you know, your political uh, analyst, what is the lane that he thinks he has? I, I think he's trying to be Trump 2.0, and I think he's trying to shine a light on the fact that he can be more effective than Trump. And so, yes, you know, Trumpism is alive and well. It has clearly metastasized uh, across the, the Republican Party on the local, state, and federal level. But in terms of translating that into passing legislation, we're talking about sort of the, the Republican wish list, the MAGA wish list, right? I think DeSantis is trying to say, look at what I've done in, in, in Florida. I've delivered against the MAGA wish list in a way that Trump hasn't been able to deliver to, uh, deliver in Washington. You know, send me there, you know, uh, to, to finish this mission. Uh, I think that is the pitch that he's trying to make. Um, very different, very much in contrast to Senator Tim Scott, you know, whose, whose pitch is Trumpy, you know, but Trumpy with a smile. <laughs> You know, uh, uh, you know, Senator Tim Scott, you know, supports a lot of the same policies. But, but let me let me ask you this, Nick. Can, can DeSantis say I'm Trump 2.0 and I can get it done when he couldn't without directly attacking Trump? Because he didn't mention Trump in this launch yesterday. And he, so far he's been very hesitant to take Trump on. So what Trump did was went and got that video of DeSantis praising him, reading a bedtime story with his baby and, you know, saying, look, this is the dude that said, I'm the man. So here's this guy praising me. And now he wants to be the president. So it's like he wants to take me out. And a lot of folks are saying, well, you know, you, you can't take out your mentor and, you know, that that this is the death knell of DeSantis's campaign. But I, do you think he can get away with attacking Trump without saying I'm attacking Trump. Hold that thought. We're going to take some news. Uh, but I want you to think about that when we come forward, talk about can DeSantis be successful if he never mentions Trump by name? Stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. Ariva time is the right time. More of Ariva Martin in real time when we come forward. Let's get back to more of Aretha Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. All right, I'm back with Dr. Nick Cordelay Corte. He's KBLA National Political Analyst and host of A More Perfect Union on Sundays at 10 a.m. and 10 p.m. And Dr. Carlos Hill, historian, professor, and author. All right, so Dr. Corte, 
Can Ron DeSantis have a chance of winning the Republican primary unless he's willing to get down and dirty in the mud with Donald Trump, who uh, I should say yesterday after that uh, meltdown on Twitter, uh, Trump took to social media. Uh, he tweeted on his own uh, platform, wow, the DeSantis <laughs> uh, Twitter launch is a disaster. He said his whole campaign will be a disaster. Just watch. So Trump is not holding back. What does DeSantis do when he gets punched by Trump like that? Well, I, I certainly think that DeSantis is going to try and, and outfox Trump. Yeah, I think he's going to try and, and do that. Uh, and I think what he's betting is that Trump's legal uh, dilemmas, his legal cases, you know, are going to pull focus from anything that he has to say that's going to be able to, to keep folks engaged and give people confidence uh, that, A, he can win, uh, and B, he can govern. Uh, I think that's, that's what DeSantis is hoping for. And so in the meantime, it seems to me that he's trying to stay above the fray and not pick a fight uh, with Trump. But, you know, who knows whether or not he can throw a punch. Well, can you not pick a fight? We saw what that did for those other candidates that ran uh, with Trump or tried to run against Trump in 2016. That MAGA base, they they like their candidates to be, you know, that obnoxious bully that you talked about. They they otherwise assume you're weak, that you're frail, that you're ineffective. So how does DeSantis overcome that characterization, uh, Professor Hill, if he's not throwing punches at Donald Trump? I, I mean, I just I just want to step back in us to just sort of think about the I reflect on the kind of political culture that we're talking about, like the ways in which white reactionary politics are just um, the, have become the norm. And we're talking about whether DeSantis will go, um, you know, lower than Trump or will he out try to out Trump Trump um, in terms of those kinds of politics that just kind of. It's, it's scary to think that this is what is on menu, that this this is the politics uh, that we're we're actually uh, trying to trying to uh, parse and understand. But I think DeSantis only has one option, and that is to um, is to confront Donald Trump, because Donald Trump isn't I mean, he's already shown in the, in the first week. Uh, what he's going to do, and that is just going to escalate as the campaign draws closer and closer to the election. And so it's not possible for DeSantis to win unless he confronts Donald Trump because his voters are going to expect him to. Um, and that's the bottom line. And so he's going to have to confront Donald all the claims and allegations that Trump makes about him on the campaign trail. He's going to have to respond to them or they're going to become the narrative, as has been the case when Republicans don't take didn't take Donald Trump seriously. So that's just the reality of the Republican Party right now. And he is a part of it. I, I think one of his slogans now is you can be the leader of a movement, but not the leader of a party, suggesting that, well, Trump may be the move, the leader of this movement, but he's not the true leader of the party. I'm the true leader of the party because. As you said, uh, Nee, I'm getting stuff done in Florida. Let's talk about Joe Biden for a minute. So Joe Biden is having, I think, one of the like best, you know, presidencies of of any that we can point to. This appointment uh, to the Joint Chiefs of Staff of this Air Force General C.Q. Brown Jr., a history-making fighter pilot, uh, 
Again, now we're going to have the first uh, Pentagon top military and civilian positions held by black men. Again, the, why is it that Biden, again, and I, people continue to say Joe Biden has not done anything for black people? I mean, yeah. I, I just had someone say that to me last week. And here we go. I mean, this has never happened in the history of our country. And it's happening under Joe Biden's administration. I mean, I think part of it is that, uh, you know, the media landscape has shifted um, and people aren't going to fewer sources. They're going to more sources. And most importantly, people are reading the news through the palm of their hand, you know, each and every day. And so I think that makes it difficult for the, the, the historic work that the administration is doing. It makes it harder for, for them to break through that noise. You know, listen, we all, you know, hear it in, in all different forms, you know, ideas that, you know, maybe this administration isn't doing everything they can do. I mean, certainly on today being the third anniversary of the murder of George Floyd, um, look at where we were three years ago. Look at where we are today in terms of conversations around police accountability and police reform. I mean, even if you looked at some of the tweets of folks that were some of the leading voices in that conversation in Washington three years ago, you look at their Twitter feeds today and, you know, they didn't have much to say, you know, about this uh, anniversary of the murder of George Floyd. And so, uh, you know, I think part of it is, uh, you know, Democrats uh, have a story to tell, uh, but, uh, you know, don't necessarily have uh, the fire to tell the story, not to just fight the fight, but to tell the story of what, what you're doing. Biden has put a lot of points on the board legislatively, and his big pitch to voters, to black voters, is send me back for a second term to finish the job. Now, that sounds nice, you know, but what does that mean in terms of Congress? You know, if we send him back with a Senate that looks almost the same and uh, a House of Representatives looks almost the same, it's going to feel more like the same. And we're going to continue to hear people say, uh, what has the president done for black people? No, you're right, because also today uh, that student loan forgiveness program that people were already pissed off about because they said it didn't go far enough. Biden didn't you know, reduce enough debt or didn't forgive enough student loan debt. The House voted yesterday to overturn uh, the entire plan to cancel the $400 billion in debt. So Biden gets blamed for not canceling enough debt while the Republicans are voting to basically wipe out all the debt that was canceled. Uh, and I think you're right about this Democrats not staying on message. Uh, we were talking about George Floyd, the anniversary of his murder. We talked about it for the last couple of days on this show. But it seems like, you know, the news cycles are so fast that it's very hard to maintain the attention of anyone. But we as Democrats have to stay on message. And that's why I got so excited when I saw the news this morning about you know, this Air Force general. And I think about him. I think about, um, you know, Katanji Brown Jackson. I think about all the, the African-Americans who are in positions of power under the Biden administration that, again, folks say he hasn't done anything. They're probably, I'm sure they're more, and you may know this better than I do, need more black folks serving in the Biden administration. When you look at the number of black folks in this country, you know, we probably are disproportionately represented in high places in his his administration. And yet folks don't seem to give a lot of credence. To that. You know, they don't give him a lot of, you know, uh, 
credit, I should say, for that. Uh, Dr. Hill, they still say this guy's not doing anything for us, but yet he is working and doing things. And, and representation matters. I, I don't know. Most people don't know what the Joint Chiefs of Staff, do, you know, who that person is or what they do. But mm -hmm. it sure feels good to me to wake up and see that CQ Brown Jr. is in that job. Well, I'm going to I'm going to feel good with you, Ariba. <laughs> I'm going to feel good right now with you about it. But I'm going to say this, too. Um, I think I think that it, it's kind of what we've been talking about. How does this how does those appointments, even those very symbolic appointments, right? Uh, chairman, Joint Chiefs of Staff, right? How is that going to translate to, let's say, the masses or to making a uh, appreciable difference in the lives of, let's say, people of color, or just say black people. Like, I think that's where the narrative isn't translating. Right. Um, I think on the one hand, I think there's a deep sort of satisfaction for me to know that that, you know, Biden has done all these appointments. But, you know, you, when you step back from that, 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 that um, those sort of um those that sort of symbolic power, how is it translating tangibly? And I think that's where many people are kind of either skeptical or just not understanding how it's translating. No, you're right about that, Professor Hill. But the reality is that's because people have such a unsophisticated, and I'm sorry I have to use that word, view of what the president's power is. The president's power is limited. Under our government, and as Nee said, without the Congress, or, uh, without the Senate, the president can have every great idea he wants, such as the student loan debt relief, and then guess what happens? It gets blown up by a Republican Congress. So as we blame the president, people, we also have to make sure we understand our civics and what the presidential powers are and how he is limited from a presidential power standpoint. Uh, when we come forward, I want to talk about Professor Henry Lewis's Gates' new project and how exciting it's going to be in 2025 to have this uh, African-American English dictionary where some of our favorite words like boo and chitlins <laughs> will be uh, defined for the entire world to see. Stay with us, KBLA Talk 1580. She's the real deal. In real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. The way we spend our time defines who we are. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. All right, Dr. Corte, words with African origins such as goober, gumbo, and okra survived the Middle Passage along with our African ancestors. Now, that's according to Harvard professor Henry Louis Gates. And words that we take for granted today, such as cool and crib and hokum and dis. Hip and hep, bad, meaning good, and dig, meaning to understand. These are just the tiny fractions of the words that we're going to see in this new uh, African-American uh, English dictionary. How exciting is this? I'm super excited today. I'm excited about that brother that's now the Joint Chiefs of Staff chairperson. <laughs> and now this dictionary that's going to define all of these words that we use uh, in our homes, in our communities. So this is going to be a really exciting project. Very exciting and very timely. I mean, this project is happening at a time where we continue to see book bans sweeping through the country. Uh, just this week, we saw uh, 
another demonstration of hate and bigotry in Florida where a single parent's complaint uh, over Amanda Gorman's uh, poem uh, led a Miami-Dade school uh, to take it out, right? And, and, and so, you know, we, we can't uh, just shrug our shoulders and, you know, act like that's not, like, act like that's normal. That's not normal. Um, but, you know, uh, as the great Dr. Angelo says, and still we rock. And I think uh, Henry Louis Gates' latest uh, work uh, is an example of that, you know, uh, whereas uh, there are forces out there that in, intend uh, to stamp out any traces of our history, any traces of our connection uh, to one another across the diaspora. Uh, Dr. Henry Louis Gates is, is at it again, helping us to not just find our roots, as his hit PBS uh, shows us so well, but helping us to stay connected to our roots. And we know that language is a part of the connective tissue that keeps us connected to one another, connected to our history, connected uh, to what cannot be unbound uh, or broken apart by any force of hate. So one of the, uh, some of the commentary that's coming uh, about this new dictionary, Dr. Hill, is the fact that English, the, the words and phrases that Black folks use are finally going to get their props. They're going to be defined. We're going to be given credit for these words and phrases that sometimes, oftentimes get uh, misappropriated. And folks on TikTok think that they've created, you know, a phrase or words. <laughs> and these are words and phrases that we've been using in Black households for decades do yeah. you think this solves that problem in any way? It might help with cultural appropriation. It might. That's what you're suggesting, like that. On yeah, Twitter. that's some folks think it might do that. What are your thoughts? Yeah. I I think that's going to be an ongoing struggle. Cultural appropriation is just American culture, and so we're going to have to fight that uh, as an ongoing struggle. But um, I just want to uh, continue to to. Uh, uh, to say, I feel good about the things you're feeling good about, Aretha. <laughs> um, and, and as well, I think, Nia, you put it so beautifully. I can't really say anything more to add to what you've said, but just to to affirm that this is, you know, given what is happening right now all across the country, the bans and so forth, to have this effort happening uh, is a form of resistance to that, right? We're, we're still... We're fighting DeSantis. We're fighting what's happening here in Oklahoma by by creating projects like this um, to shine a light on right our history. Black, you know what I would call black vernacular. And I would say what's special about black vernacular is not just the way in which we speak, the cadence, the style, but that in our black vernacular we capture the black felt history right, of our experience, right? And so when we were talking earlier about chitterlings, right, that's a part of our belt. Chitlins. <laughs> Thank you for correcting me. Thank, Thank you. you. For, okay, but you see, see how we have that? That's our belt history here. And so those words mean something. And for us to actually have a, a encyclopedia that defines and outlines the history of those words, that's a major contribution. So you're we're, you're right for us to be to feel good about that and to affirm that, particularly in this moment. Yeah, and and, and to that point, Dr. Hill. So what we know, Dr. Nee, is that 
we had to develop our own way of communicating. This coded language kept us alive during slavery because there were these, you know, anti-literacy laws that prohibited mm -hmm. enslaved people from reading and writing. But that didn't stop us from learning how to communicate with each other and using words and phrases that we could understand, but that the, you know, the slave owners oftentimes could not interpret. So how you know, important is that, that that history of why we use today coded language, we can you know, see each other and you and I can have a whole conversation. Mm -hmm. You and I understand, like about those chitlins, that somebody else may be thinking about, what the hell are they talking about? That's right. And we can also have a, a whole nonverbal communication. And perhaps that is the second volume of uh, Dr. Hedlund's Gabe's book right there. But, you know, uh, language is a beautiful thing. And it's beautiful that we have a language that crosses space and time and continents. And, you know, I can't. Yeah, I think we're having some uh, technical issues with Nick Quarterly's uh, oh, oh. sound. Something is, is happening. Uh, Andy, is that just Dr. Nee? All right, we, we hope uh, we get that back. But uh, Dr. Hill, help us again. I think this is so cool because, again, we don't get nearly enough credit for our inventions, whether it's our dancing, you know, our dance moves, our, our fashion, and now our, our language. And I'm really excited, again, super excited to keep using that word. They're going to Black Twitter. A lot of the research that's being uh, used for this dictionary is coming from Black Twitter. I don't know if anyone, if if any of us could have imagined the significance and the role that Black Twitter would have on the culture. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, Black Twitter is now, you know, in a state of, of, of flux because Elon Musk has decided to blow Twitter up <laughs> and try to make Twitter the new Fox on steroids, right? But before that happened, Black Twitter was the place where you could go, I mean, it, it, and get the tea before the tea, you know, was the tea. Mm -hmm. So how important is it that you think that, you know, an uh, institution, cultural institution like Black Twitter be used for this kind of project? Oh, well, I mean, I think that, well, I'm going to say I'm a Black Twitter citizen and <laughs> often inhabit Twitter uh, to go on to Twitter to affirm and to fight for and to highlight Black people, especially freedom fighters that I work with here in Oklahoma City or in Tulsa. But um, I would say that these efforts are, are extremely, extremely important because of, of, the, of the moment um, that we are in, uh, Ariba. So I think the the, the fight, um, particularly here in Oklahoma, is one which we, we have to um, encourage uh, efforts such as this, particularly when we have books like uh, the, the Life of, and Times of Frederick Douglass being banned uh, in Oklahoma, a cortex that has been a cortex in American high schools, middle schools for decades are being banned. And so we have to encourage these efforts such as this when they're happening. 
Real quickly, uh, Dr. Neat, woke. DeSantis used it like five times in his Twitter meltdown presidential announcement. But we know woke has been misappropriated. Tell us real quickly what woke meant before DeSantis decided it was going to be his favorite word. Woke simply means enlightenment. And there's a, there's a whole period of American history that was around enlightenment. So, you know, don't fall for the Alice in Wonderland Act from Governor DeSantis. He knows what woke means. It's enlightenment. It's awareness. It's consciousness. And they don't want us to be woke. They want us to be asleep uh, so they can bludgeon us uh, 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 to death uh, in so many different ways. And so don't take the bait. A great way to end this really interesting exciting conversation about this new dictionary that's coming out in 2025. Thank you so much, Dr. Nee Cortele Corte, a KBLA national political analyst, host of A More Perfect Union. You can catch him right here on KBLA every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. and then again at 10 p.m. And thank you, Dr. Carlos Hill, historian, professor, and author of Beyond the Rope, The Impact of Lynching on Black Culture and Memory. Always a pleasure to see both of you. When we come forward, Tina Turner and her legacy and what it means to the culture. Stay with us, KBLA Talk 1580. KBLA 1580 Santa Monica. In the NFL's offseason power rankings, they checked in at number nine. The rankings are based in part on how teams did after the draft. The Rams are 25th. The top five, Kansas City, Cincinnati, Philadelphia, Buffalo, and San Francisco. The Miami Heat have a significant injury concern for game five tonight in Boston. Point guard Gabe Vincent will miss the game with a sprained left ankle. Vincent is averaging 17.5 points and shooting 50% from three-point range in the Eastern Conference Finals. Interesting weekend coming up for the Dodgers. They start a three-game series in Tampa Bay on Friday. Tampa Bay has Major League Baseball's best record record at 36 and 15 the Dodgers have the best record in the National League at 31 and 20 no debates no speculation just the info you need that's your KBLA Sports Minute I'm Ray Richardson more news opinions and conversation when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580 that's somebody's brother, son, uncle. That was a human life. They can take all that Ku Klux Klan stuff on because it's over. Slavery's over. We're not accepting it no more. It's done. Say his name. Say his name. George Floyd. George Floyd. Say his name. Say his name. George Floyd. George Floyd. We're here to be a community. But we can't when we're still being murdered by the hands of the same people who's supposed to be protecting our community. Say his name. Say his name. Say his name. Standing up for black lives on the angelversary of George Floyd Jr. With all of us on KBLA Talk 1580. Professor Henry Louis Gates, a decorated scholar of Black history and culture, is the editor-in-chief of the Oxford Dictionary of African-American English. This new dictionary will be out by March 2025. The goal of the project is to underscore the significance of African-American English and to create a resource for future research into Black speech, history, and culture. One of his proudest possessions is a first edition of the Samuel, Samuel Johnson Dictionary. Uh, researchers aim for a first batch of 1,000 definitions. Some words and phrases will have more than one meaning. 
House Democratic lawmakers are voicing frustration over President Biden's approach to negotiating a debt ceiling deal with Republicans, worrying that their priorities are not being aggressively pursued and that Biden hasn't more forcefully pushed back publicly against Republican demands. However, there's some breaking news that Republicans and Joe Biden may be near a deal that would uh, raise the debt ceiling and put some caps on spending in particular areas, including the military. So we'll keep our eye on what happens with that potential deal. Tina Turner is revered worldwide as the American queen of rock and roll. But for Turner, Europe was the place where she reached new levels of fame and happiness after a very tumultuous life in the United States and abusive first marriage. As the Supreme Court deliberates the future of President Biden's student loan forgiveness program, the House voted Wednesday to overturn the controversial plan to cancel more than 400 million or 400 billion that is in debt as well as restart loan payments for tens of millions of borrowers. Ron DeSantis's presidential campaign launch meltdown on Twitter as Twitter glitched as the future uh, Republican, well, as the, the candidate who wants to be the next president of the United States made his announcement. By the time DeSantis got the moment of making his announcement, only 70,000 viewers remained on the platform. This is a significantly smaller audience than is traditional for a major presidential campaign launch. And President Joe Biden announced today that he is tapping Air Force General C.Q. Brown Jr., a history-making fighter pilot with deep knowledge of China, to serve as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Brown's confirmation would mean that for the first time ever, both the Pentagon's top military and civilian positions would be held by African-Americans. The Arkansas man who was photographed on January 6, 2021 with his feet on a desk in the then Speaker Nancy Pelosi's office was sentenced yesterday to four and a half years in prison. The NAACP's travel advisory for Black people considering a visit or move to Florida has less to do with potential travelers and more to do with rallying the Black residents of the state of Florida to counter Republican-led policies. And now this is according to the NAACP leadership team. And Target came under intense scrutiny this week after the retail giant announced that it was pulling some LGBTQ-themed merchandise following what a corporate spokesperson described as threats impacting our team members' sense of safety and well-being while at work. Target customers posted videos on TikTok showing that Pride merchandise had been moved to less visible locations, including the back of the store. You are listening to Ariva Martin in real time, and I'm your host, Ariva Martin. This is your one-stop destination for today's trending news, expert analysis, and my unfiltered opinions. This is hour two, and today in this hour, we're going to do a deep dive on Tina Turner. I mean, everyone has been mourning her death. Folks across the globe have been weighing in, talking about the significance uh, of her life, her legacy, the musical legacy that she leaves behind. But today I want to 
delve into how pop culture and particularly rap, the rap culture has treated Tina Turner and her relationship, that abusive relationship that we all got to see played out in that movie, What's Love Got to Do With It, uh, the movie that showed uh, the domestic violence that Tina Turner suffered while married to her uh, ex-husband, former husband, Ike Turner. Uh, you'll be shocked to see how that pain and the the violence that Tina Turner suffered as a result of being in that relationship for almost 17 or a little over 17 years, how her pain has been turned into lyrics and rap songs and how after that movie, Ike Turner became an idol to many while Tina Turner became the really the, the butt of, of jokes and her legacy tarnished by something so painful as domestic violence. Uh, I have two of the nation's leading experts on African-American culture and Black love joining me when we come forward right here on KBLA Talk 1580. She's the real deal. In real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. There's no time like the present. Let's get back to more of Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. I'm back and we're talking in this hour about the musical legend and icon Tina Turner. Uh, as you all know, she died yesterday at 83 in her home in Switzerland. And while there is so much to celebrate from her legacy, in this hour, we're really focusing on the way her legacy has impacted Black culture, Black love, and how Black rappers uh, have used uh, the abusive relationship with her ex-husband, Ike Turner, uh, in their lyrics. Uh, the dysfunctional relationship between Ike and Tina Turner was depicted in the 1993 movie, What's Love Got to Do With It?, which really chronicled Ike's abuse during the 16-year-long marriage. We know Angela Bassett and Lawrence Fishburne uh, put on rousing and unforgettable performances as Tina and Ike Turner. But some drew the wrong conclusion from that movie. Uh, Ike Turner's music career never recovered, but a lot of rappers made him a beacon of domineering idolatry. Uh, his depiction of Ike made him right to be referenced as like this representative of force, despite his violence. And, you know, on the other hand, rappers used Tina Turner as some kind of punching bag, made her almost like a meme, started using these lines in their lyrics like, uh, Quavo's Ike Turner with the left hand, uh, you know, this is all in spite of the violations that we saw against Tina Turner by Ike Turner. I can go on some of these lines, uh, ye rhyme before I beat myself up like Ike uh, on diamonds are forever. The notorious B I G rhyme beaten MFs like Ike beat Tina. Uh, then there's machine gun funk. Uh, he said, we fight, wake up, and F like Ike and Tina Turner uh, on I'm So Fly by Fabulous. Uh, she called me Ike Turner because I beat her in the car. And, you know, just kind of goes on and on these references to this masculine obsession and this violence. Uh, and so here to help us understand how this movie about domestic violence uh, ends up resulting in Ike Turner being some kind of male hero and Tina Turner being a punching bag. Uh, joining me is 
Washington State Black Studies professor Tamika Townsell, and Emory University professor and author of Black Women, Black Love, Professor Diane Stewart. Uh, thanks and uh, welcome to the show, both of you. Welcome back, Professor uh, Stewart, and welcome back, Professor Townsell. Uh, let me start with you, uh, Professor Townsell. You know, there's so much to celebrate. Tina Turner broke so many glass ceilings. Uh, she did things in her musical career that, you know, most artists can never even dream of. But that movie, that 1993 movie, we got to see a, a side of her. We got to see this horrible, violent, horribly violent relationship between her and Ike Turner. Right. Why do you think people think it's okay to make references to beating up to, you know, Tina or beating somebody like Ike beat Tina? Yeah, I think that there are um, a few important reasons, but one of the things that we have to consider is uh, the film itself. You know, um, What's Love Got to Do With It gets released in 1993. And this is during an era of uh, the 90s that has been described as the golden age or a golden age of Black film. Um, just within the 90s, Spike Lee alone released a film about every two to three years. Uh, other films released in 93 include Poetic Justice, um, Cool Runnings, uh, Menace to Society. So this is a moment where we are seeing um, Black people and Black narratives on the silver screen. And that is translating ultimately into uh, different spaces open up for opening up for Black storytelling within commercial culture. But that particular film um, actually sanitizes, and this is according to Ms. Turner, um, it sanitizes the brutality of what she uh, actually survived. Uh, in a 1997 interview, she was on Larry King Live, and she said one of the issues she had with the film is that she said it didn't fully tell the truth. Uh, but mm. touched on pictures, which was uh, the production studio. Touched on pictures um, is owned by Disney. Uh, it's their adult film uh, arm, and um, they told uh, Turner that well, the audience isn't going to believe the truth. What you went through is so horrific that audiences won't believe it. So in any case, what you have is um, a production choice that ends up impacting the way of uh, the material that audiences are given, the lens through which they are given to understand this iconic figure and her struggles. So something that should make us uh, gasp um, in horror actually ends up being turning, like you said, into a punchline. It becomes something that we laugh at. Uh, and I think part of that is because the, the brutality isn't registering. And in the lyrics that you referenced, um, a lot of times these artists are uh, taking on the persona of Ike. Right. So for them, um, what they're able to borrow from that image is all of the material they need to take on this sort of kingpin figure. When we look at rap lyrics, the most commercially successful hip hop lyrics, uh, especially in the 90s uh, and then moving forward, we see that for rap artists who are uh, who are men, who are always the ones that dominate that particular industry, 
that Ike Turner persona is what they have to embody, right? The point bar for bar is to prove that they are the man and Black women become an accessory, a tool that they use to shore up uh, that image. So when you mesh sort of a sanitized story with uh, this impulse to uh, perform this sort of machismo that's going on um, in hip hop lyrics, you end up with this pretty ugly um, pattern of just trivializing what we all know is a pain that not only Tina Turner suffered, but that many Black women suffer. Yeah, and you're. I, I saw her also do an interview, Professor, where she said she didn't even want to watch the movie. She says, "Why do I need to watch a movie of Ike beating me up? I lived it." Uh, so, as you said, she she was not in favor of the movie, as you just said. The movie didn't even go far enough. What right. we saw, the brutality that we did witness in that movie, which was bad enough, yeah. she's saying it was ten times worse. Uh, so, Doctor Stewart, Beyonce. And Tina Turner performed at a Grammy Awards uh, event. And by all accounts, it appears that Beyonce, you know, looked up to Tina Turner, saw her as one of her role models in the business. Obviously, you can look at a lot of what Beyonce does and you can say she channels Tina Turner in the costumes, the wigs, the movements, etc. But Jay-Z has a line in a song that he and Beyonce are on together Eat the cake anime. And that's one of those scenes from that 1993 movie where literally the man is smashing cake in her face like she's not even human because you don't even you don't do that to anybody. So help us understand Beyonce, who obviously idolizes Tina Turner, respects her, patterns herself after her in many ways. But yet she, too, you could say is complicit and the trivializing of the domestic violence that is so uh, pervasive and not even pervasive enough, but pervasive in that movie. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, it's so easy for all of us, women included, to default to a patriarchal position, a position that supports um, the patriarchy that we see being lived out against Black women. You know, we 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 live in a country, we're socialized in a country where there has been no true moral outcry about how misogyny plays out in Black society. Um, when we think about it, when we think about it, we can come up with all kinds of um, time periods and uh, activist examples of where we stand when it comes on to racism as a community, even just within the Black community. We cannot see that when it comes on to gender, sexism, misogyny, unless we're looking at only a group of Black women. Where, where are those examples? And so it's so easy to default to the position that Black women really are the mules of the world, as Zora Neale Hurston said. It's, it's, it is a part, it's the air we breathe. It is how we are shaped. We are not shaped to take seriously the harm that Black women endure as a result of racism, sexism, and other other isms, just say misogynoir, to quote Moya Bailey. So it, it, while it's painful, it's not shocking. As a community, we haven't done that work. 
We haven't done that work. There, there might be segments that are doing it, and they tend to be groups of Black women who either identify as feminist or womanist, but we haven't done it in our religious institutions. We haven't done it in our familial institutions. It, it's just not a reigning narrative. So it, to some degree, does not surprise me that we can we can end up defaulting to those kinds of tropes and Tina Turner is left, you know, holding the bag. Yeah, uh, Professor uh, Townsel, I'm even, you know, I, I'm as guilty as the next woman. <laughs> uh, as Dr. Stewart said, this, this patriarchy is so ingrained in all of us. You know, it's like white supremacy culture, right? Mm -hmm. We're not white supremacists, but we have all been indoctrinated with white supremacy culture, and we all at times may default to white supremacy narratives. And mm -hmm. so this patriarchy narrative and culture causes us all because I don't know, you know, we've all probably danced to or clapped to or, you know, got our groove on to some of these songs mm -hmm. and these lines that are when you stop and think about it and reflect on it and stand back, say, oh, my God. This that wasn't pretty. That that was that was violent. I, there was a woman. His friend sent me a tweet uh, of a, another singer who said she was backstage with Tina Turner. She was seventeen, and Ike slammed Tina Turner's head into a wall, and she shook it off and went on that stage and gave one of the best performances of her life. Yeah. I mean, I think that in a sense, what's happening discursively in these lyrics is mirroring what happened to Tina Turner uh, when she was in this um, incredibly violent and uh, abusive relationship, abusive on, on multiple levels. There's a way in which um, Ike Turner takes ownership over Tina Turner. He claims um, her identity as his construction. He claims her brand as his uh, personal asset, his commodity. So what the uh, rap artists um, who are by and large Black men are doing um, in uh, recycling um, or sort of appropriating these moments from the film for their lyrics, they are doing the same thing, right? They are objectifying um, not just uh, pain or um, intimate partner violence, but actually objectifying a Black woman who uh, is has been the site, uh, whose body has been the site of that violence. She can become an object to them um, because, again, they take on this sort of kingpin persona and within the logics that govern commercial culture, any of us uh, can become a product. Yes, a commodity. Absolutely. And, and that's mm -hmm. exactly what her pain and that violence yeah. that we all witnessed. It became just that a commodity it became, you know, a cool rap line. And as you said, uh, our the patriarchal system. So so let me ask you this, though, Dr. Stewart. We could have, we being the culture, could have trivialized that violence without propping up and idolizing Ike. They're not, they're not inextricably tied, or are they? 
They, they are tied, unfortunately, because the kind of masculinity that has been glorified is a masculinity that is related to violence. I mean, it's and it it's it resonates to every aspect of this nation. I mean, the the, the kind of masculinity that su- settled this country, white colonial masculinity, was rooted in violence, genocide of the indigenous people. That is the masculinity that has been hailed for black men to imitate. And of course, at the expense of black women. I mean, you have to conquer something. You have to be uh, in control of something. And who else but the black woman? So you're saying the trivializing of the violence goes hand in hand. So it's no surprise that Ike becomes the hero or the idol in this equation because he's doing that which men want to emulate, which is dominating, conquering of someone. And like you said, who, who... we are obviously the most logical choice when you think about who are you going to dominate or conquer. It's going to be black women. Wow, that's right. And 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 the the thought oftentimes is that either black women have done something to deserve this, or women, period, done something to deserve this. It's it's your fault. Even Tina Turner herself said, you know, and I was feeling sorry for him. Who who would sing if I left? Who this. These are the narratives we're socialized into. They are center stage, the men. Yeah. And you are the, the prop, so to speak. And so it, it, we're really talking about how ideology seeps into the psyche, the soul, into our desires, into our wants. Um, and we, we need to do serious work as a culture, as a community, to, vi- to divest ourselves of that. We, yeah. we just haven't done it. Yeah, when we come forward after some sports and news, want to talk about this movie, What's Love Got to Do With It? And what's the underlying theme and this constant quest that women are on to find love and what they are willing to sacrifice in order to be loved? Uh, Stay with us, KBLA Talk 1580. Ariva time is the right time. More of Ariva Martin in real time when we come forward. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. We are back and I'm joined in this hour by Dr. Tamika Townsend. And she is a professor at the University of Washington, not Washington State University. It's the University of Washington. So I make that correction. And Dr. Diane Stewart, she is a professor at Emory. And we're having this, what I think is one of the most important conversations about Tina Turner is her legacy and how her legacy has been trampled on by some who have trivialized these incredible violence that she experienced in her marriage of 16, 17 years to Ike Turner. I want to talk, Dr. Uh, Stewart, about Black love. You wrote what I think is one of the most definitive books on Black women and Black love. So we have this 1993 movie, What's Love Got to Do With It? It's a big hit, Angela Bassett, Lawrence Fishburne. It, It tells us about the relationship how uh, Tina Turner got her start, the relationship with Ike, the marriage, the violence, and the title of the movie and a song, What's Love Got to Do With It? You know, in, in some ways it's asking who needs a heart? You know, when a heart can be broken, that's that's right out of the song. And some say that's a call uh, that so many love seekers battered in their pursuit of love from people too depraved or too broken to offer or receive love. And we saw that in this movie. I mean, Ike was just a damaged 
and a flawed, like we all all have flaws, but I mean, he was flawed in significant ways and really seemed incapable of loving Tina and definitely not capable of loving her in a way that was nonviolent because he seemed to be constantly, you know, dealing with his own sense of inadequacies and lack of confidence and, you know, feeling as if the world had done him wrong and white people had done him wrong. And I guess not uncommon for a black man in that period. So help us kind of understand from your perspective, historical perspective, what that relationship was. You're on mute, uh, Dr. Stewart. First, we should acknowledge that there were many relationships of that period that did not um, revolve around abuse, right? That there were, you know, many, most of us can probably point to people our grandparents' age who didn't have marriages like that, or even our parents' age who didn't have marriages like that. But we shouldn't deny the fact that this is quite common. Right. That some sort of violence, um, physical violence, emotional, um, psychological violence when people do feel powerless. And let's face it, drugs don't help either. Right. Substances actually can, you know, it, it <laughs> make such circumstances much more egregious, so to speak. Um, you know, people are not thinking, not in their right mind, but people do also get into these cycles of love, violence, power, um, the, 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 the um, ex, um, expression of power and tying that up with, with love, right? The, the need for forgiveness, uh, you know, makeup sex, as people will say, which we, we kind of do see a scene like that. So yes, we can talk about that particular period, but I think what we, we can see that kind of cycle in people's relationships even beyond that period right? Even beyond that period, these intimate relationships that revolve around toxic, harmful engagements, um, quite, quite common, quite common. So, you know, to me, what I think is most important that we don't do enough of, first of all, I think violence is just sensationalized in our country. You know, we just, we, we want more. We want to hear more of it. It's so sad that people would constantly ask her about it with, her intention having been, let's do the movie to kind of put the punctuation mark on this. I don't have to relive it. But, you know, there's a kind uh, of... Wait, stop, stop for, I want to stop you for a second, Dr. Swift. That's such a good point. Every time, and she talked about this, every time she did an interview about her new life, moving on, you know, new music that she was singing, glass ceilings that she was breaking, everybody wanted to talk about Ike Turner. They had been divorced for years, even after she remarried. I mean, it had been decades that she wasn't with him. But that that question just haunted. I mean, it just followed her wherever she went. This it was, is that the obsession that we have in this country with violence? And keep in mind, a lot of us do believe, are raised or socialized to feel that violence is a form of love. Mm. He really cares about me if he beats me. He, I mean, some of us are actually, you know, socialized to, to believe that, to associate that kind of violence with mm. love. You see, so so there are a number of people in the audience that, that would easily for, forget about Tina, focus on the sensational violence, want to hear more about it. But what about the fact that she gets out? <laughs> you know, what about that? 
Mm-hmm. And, and her spirituality that helps her to focus on loving herself and desiring something else for herself and not being fearful of her abuser. That in itself was such a tremendous accomplishment. We we don't we're not as fixated on that. That's what we need to be fixated on. Mm. Yeah. And Dr. Townsell, maybe the question of what's love got to do with it wasn't so much about the quest or the search for romantic love, but this country lionized her abuser. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How yeah. <laughs> help us understand that, what that must have meant and felt like to her to see no matter what she did, all of these amazing things, here's this man who should, and by a lot of accounts, people would say be demonized, was instead lionized. Yeah, you know, one of the things that um, happens when one offers one story up and you are in a position like Tina Turner was, when you are um, center stage within this culture machine that is um, demanding more and more and more from you um, and that does not recognize at all your humanity and only sees you as a cog in the machine to produce profit, then, you know, there's a risk that one one takes uh, when offering up the story. And I think that um, Tina Turner understood uh, that risk and uh, she she persevered, she pressed through uh, for a number of reasons, but she she did share that she thought that there was something powerful about her story, that there was something powerful in her telling her story, uh, and that she thought that it it would have a good impact. Um, and, and people have, you know, talked about her as a feminist or contributing to um, feminist uh, ideas and principles through uh, sharing the story of of how she came out. But because uh, her story, again, isn't honored, isn't something that an audience is invited to bear witness to. It's something that an audience is invited to consume. Mm-hmm. Um, and whenever you have uh, that that overriding structure, then the uh, the humanness of it, the power of it, the 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 beauty in her vulnerability, um, the beauty in uh, I mean, she was quite literally beautiful. You know, even her 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 physical presentation of herself, the way that she was able to maintain. Um, power in her body uh, for for so many years is um, is is there's a there's a value there that just isn't going to be seen through any sort of um, commercial lens. It's something that uh, we as viewers have to sort of read against the the superstructure to to get the 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 human story um yeah. within it and there's a uh, bell hooks called that sort of um practice of spectatorship the oppositional gaze that you don't have to uh engage with a film in the way that the producers might intend you can read against uh mm-hmm. the grain and black women in particular um have been doing that 
for forever. <laughs> yeah, you know, Dr. Stewart, Dr. Townsell used the word feminist or feminism. And so Tina Turner, born in a little farm town in Tennessee, uh, some accounts, maybe even picked cotton on a farm, makes her way to East St. Louis. You know, it starts hanging out in this nightclub is where she apparently meets Ike Turner and starts singing with him. I hardly think that Tina Turner or women, black women growing up in East St. Louis, I'm from St. Louis, so I know what East St. Louis is, I have firsthand knowledge of it, thought of themselves as feminists. As progressive as we may like to think of her now, Tina Turner is the age, would have been the age of my mom that's deceased. My mom and, and relatives actually knew her. And I just know that that generation of black women weren't, Thinking, I mean, limited education, they, those weren't concepts that they readily identify with, although telling that story in many ways, uh, you know, thrust her into uh, the limelight in a way that many women look to her. So when we come forward, I want to explore that because that's a really interesting term and concept when I think about the Black women I grew up with in East St. Louis and St. Louis. Uh, stay with us, KBLA Talk 1580. She's the real deal. In real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. At Council. There's no time like the present. Let's get back to more of Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. All right, Dr. Stewart, help us understand Tina Turner and her relationship to feminism and how we should think of her uh, given what she persevered through, how she stood up to Ike Turner, how she left him, how she, you know, made sure she uh, maintained her name, how she rebuilt her career. So many things that we would associate with a feminist. But, you know, give us again that historical context in which she was growing up in this poor black community of East St. Louis, Illinois, in club, nightclubs, these poor black you know, communities where these nightclubs were in the 40s and, and 50s in which she is uh, coming into her own as a singer. Well, one of the things we know is that Black feminists have always said that the personal is political. You know, we think of a feminist as someone who is doing something very official, organizing around women's rights, whatever it might be, in a public way, maybe in an intellectual way, writing theory, looking at history, and looking at those movements that have kind of shaped culture and the culture wars, so to speak, and transformed culture and transformed work culture and home culture and what have you. So sure, Black women like Tina Turner, um, her parents, you know, her, the, the women in her mother's circle, they wouldn't have been thinking of themselves like that. But I think that is one of the reasons that Alice Walker shifted the terminology to womanism, because mm. she says it's a, fem a, a Black feminist or a feminist of color. And what does she do in that definition? She goes to vernacular strategies that Black women have used to free themselves and their communities. Community is always there with Black women, to free themselves and their communities. And part of the community is the children. What did Tina Turner do? In that one scene when we saw her flee, she made sure that those children were with her. In fact, we know that's one of the reasons that so many enslaved Black women would not flee. I mean, let's face it, fleeing itself was almost like suicide anyway, but they, they just wouldn't leave their children. So I, I, I say that to say that there, there have 
already been conversations for, for decades now about the feminism that we see in the ordinary vernacular way of being in Black women. And, and in many respects, Tina Turner represents that. I mean, mm. let's face it. She, I mean, she 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 left court with, with her name and I think two cars. That was it. She said, you can take it all. And she rebuilds herself, totally rebuilds herself. Um, I could say at an age, let's be clear about that too. At At an age where people weren't rebuilding, it's not today where you can have 12 careers and you can start it at 60 or 70 or even 80. You know, you can be president. We're talking about a whole different era where she was in her 40s, late 40s. That was considered, you know, well past her prime in terms of having a musical career. Indeed. So, you know, how she feels about the term or felt about the term herself, I don't even know. I I don't think I've ever read anything, (laughs) you know, where I've heard a comment on it. But clearly in the broad spectrum of what feminisms and Black feminisms in particular have come to mean, there is a place for Tina Turner and or Black women at the vernacular level just living their lives, but doing all kinds of feminist things or womanist things that they wouldn't even know. Um, And that's one of the things I love about the womanism definition, because Alice Walker says it comes from you. It comes from the garden of my mother. Um, It comes from black women, even little black girls acting, quote unquote, womanish. There is that feminist impulse and those feminist ways of being that we've all been around, but we haven't named them as such. Mm. So, yeah, you know, it depends on which feminism you're talking about. And feminist conversations and theorization has gotten so broad, even in the academy. But we're so used to essentializing it often as a bunch of women that hate men. (laughs) (laughs) It's unbelievable because to me, the kinds of issues that feminists and womanists care about actually can liberate men too but you know that's that's neither here nor there um so so absolutely she fits in for many yeah. people she fits no in. Th- that's that's great that that's such a great way to, that's a great frame uh work to give us to think about her i, I want to ask you dr townsville before I, I let both of you go tina turner wasn't just betrayed by ike Turner, you know, the violence that, that she suffered with him. I, I've read articles where she talked about feeling betrayed by this country, by the music industry, uh, so much so that she left this country. She she moves, you know, she died in Switzerland where she was living. She was with her, uh, you know, her husband who she had been with for over 40 years. Uh, help us understand that. Like what would drive someone who's born and raised in Tennessee, moves to East St. Louis, then moves to Los Angeles, has a fully developed life in the United States, has fans in the United States, has done well, has been successful, but yet feels this need to leave the United States and live out their life, the rest of their life, the remaining parts of their lives in another country. One of the things that Tina Turner would say when people would ask her about this is, well, in Europe, I'm as big as Madonna. Mm -hmm. In some places of Europe, I'm as big as the Rolling Stones. She very much understood her value. And in doing that, she uh, set the stage for so many Black women performers who are superstars, the Rihanna's the Janet Jacksons, the Beyonce's who don't have to go overseas to have uh, to take control of their careers and to uh, literally be valued to to have their their artistry and their performances um, valued in a way that uh, reflects 
their true um, the true height and depth of their of their talent. So uh, she went to Europe in part for that and for love. Right. Uh, I I love that she was, you know, she she ends her life with this gorgeous European man who is several years her junior. And uh, at one point she was asked in an interview, you know, well, what does he think of your career? And she said, what do you mean by that? He has nothing to do with it. (laughs) And I said, yes, that is the lesson we need to take. Yes. Tina Turner. Wow. That's great. Thank you for reminding us uh, about that. Okay, Dr. Stewart, I'm gonna give you the last word on this. You are the author of Black Women, Black Love. What about that love story that Dr. Townsend just dropped on us, that she didn't just leave for her career, she left for love? Yeah, I, I think it's beautiful. I think it's wonderful that she could leave that toxic situation and actually have the energy and the vision to see love and find it and pursue it again. That, I mean, that's the last laugh in one way, but it's also fulfillment. That's your sociality. That's your soulmate. That's your, and she had that. She had that to her death and that is powerful. Yeah. You know, one of the things we saw in that movie, what's love got to do with it is we would, we saw I so, you know, regretting how he had just abused her so much and trying to come back with flowers and niceties and, you know, but she resisted, you know, and we don't know, you know, what span that was and what that actually looked like. But that, that was, a, I think, a significant part of that, because we know domestic violence uh, victims oftentimes, you know, I, I think the stat is it takes them sometimes seven times uh, before they can actually get out of a toxic relationship. But I thought that was also very powerful in that movie is that despite having children with him, despite having built this incredible you know, mm. musical career with him, when she was done, she was done. And that's not the case, uh, Dr. Stewart, for a lot of women. A lot of women find it very, very difficult because you said, you know, we've been socialized in some instances to believe that that violence is a form of love. Absolutely. And another uh, um, addendum to that is she didn't marry the love, the person she claims that she fell in love with at first sight. She did not marry him for 13 years. She said, she said at that time, I'm not sure how that happened. She said at that time, I was prepared to get to know him. Mm. So there was some real wisdom there that even though all these things were happening in her heart, in her emotions, she still had the presence of mind that, okay, now I need to get to know him. And she said, I needed 13 years to do that. That in itself is really interesting. She was enjoying her partner, enjoying. And then she said, yes, I can marry. Because the other thing about marriage, I mean, granted, I, I, I love it. I defend it and all of that. But it can be it can be like an angle bracelet. <laughs> you know? It can be like an angle bracelet. And, and when people get married, you know, it, it, they don't just break up as easily. Right. So she took her time and she realized by the end of her life that. She had made all the right decisions with this one. 
Well, what a beautiful way to end this conversation. Whenever I have you on this show, Dr. Stewart, I need about two more hours. And then to put you on with Dr. Townsville, I need four more hours. You you ladies are so brilliant. And, and, and we you have a little connection. We have a connection there, Dr. Townsville. We do. I, I just realized that. I don't think we met, but but, no. but I know you're a better house. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you both have dropped so much knowledge and have just helped put this in, put Tina Turner's life, her relationships in uh, such incredible perspective. I thank to both of you, University of Washington Black Studies Professor Tamika Townsville, Emory University Professor and Arthur of Black Women, Black Love, Professor Diane Stewart. You are both rock stars. Thank you so much. The next voice that you hear will be Robin Ayers and the Raw Report right here on KBLA Talk 1580. KBLA 1580 Santa Monica.